I invite you to make your way to the Gospel of Luke chapter 23. We've been in a series of messages for quite some time now entitled, Jesus Came to Seek and to Save. We're coming down now toward the end of Luke's narrative with a focus on the cross. We looked at Luke 22 in its entirety with an emphasis on what took place leading up to the cross. Today we emphasize the crucifixion of Jesus, the significance of it, and what it means for our lives now and eternally. And then we're going to close out with the resurrection in Luke chapter 24. So by way of a broad sweep of the narrative, I want to give some recap as well as some introduction, and then we're going to look most specifically at some verses toward the end of the chapter here in just a moment. In a message entitled, The Way of the Cross Leads Home. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus was betrayed by Judas. He was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was led away. He was first brought to the home of Annas, the former high priest. Then he was brought to the home of Caiaphas, who was the sitting high priest. The Sanhedrin was gathered, and they brought false witnesses against Jesus before the council. And the high priest demanded to know if Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God. As soon as daybreak came, the Sanhedrin gathered again in official session, and they conducted a trial. The elders, both chief priests and the scribes, came together, and they led Jesus into the council. And they began to interrogate him. If you are the Christ, tell us. And Jesus replied in Luke 22 and verse 69, But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. We saw how Jesus is the Son of Man who is seated at the right hand of power presently, and he will return on the clouds of heaven. We await his return. We long for it. We anticipate it. And in the meantime, we seek to serve him faithfully uh, while we wait for that time to come. A trial took place before Pilate. In Luke chapter 23, in the first five verses, the Roman government did not allow the Jewish leaders the authority to execute a criminal, so the religious leaders sent Jesus to Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor over the region of Judea. Pilate was known to be a ruthless man, and the religious leaders undoubtedly thought that he would, in fact, crucify and execute Jesus. The claims that they brought against him were that He was a revolutionary and he was misleading the nation. He was opposing the payment of taxes and he was saying that he was a Messiah, the king, which would have been a threat to the Roman government. Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you say so. He then told the chief priests and the crowds, I find no grounds for charging this man. I think Pilate at that point could see that the motives of the religious leaders were not Pure. They were not coming with the right motives or for the right reasons. But at any rate, the leaders would not let up. And they continued to throw these charges against Jesus. And the situation intensified. I try to put myself in this whole scene that was happening because it was building up. It was like the pressure that was building up to a fever pitch. And something was about to take place. So Jesus was sent to a trial before Herod Antipas, verses 6 through 12 of Luke 23. 
Pilate asked if Jesus was a Galilean, and as soon as he realized that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent Jesus to Herod because Herod ruled over Galilee. Now, this was Herod Antipas, who was the grandson of Herod the Great. Clark, the Bible commentator, said the city of Nazareth in which Christ had continued till he was 30 years of age, and then that of Capernaum, in which he principally resided the last years of his life, were both in Lower Galilee, of which Herod Antipas was tetrarch. Pilate was probably glad of this opportunity to pay a little respect to Herod, whom it is likely he was irritated and with whom now he wished to be friends. Herod was glad to see Jesus, and he'd wanted to see Jesus for quite some time. Again, not for the right reasons, mostly for his own amusement. He wanted to see Jesus do a miracle. So he begins to ask a bunch of questions, but Jesus does not answer. And the chief priests and the scribes continue their accusations. And then the contempt that followed from Herod shows us what Herod really thought. They mocked Jesus. They dressed him in bright clothing. They sent him back to Pilate. The only thing Herod and Pilate had in common was their contempt for Jesus. And so there was a second trial before Pilate in verses 13 through 25. Pilate calls the chief priests and the leaders and the people and he tells them he's found no charge against the man of what they had accused him of. Uh, Herod didn't either and he was not deserving of death. So Pilate says he'll have him whipped and then he'll release him. But the crowd is building. Crucify him. Crucify him. And Pilate handed Jesus over to them, and he was led away in verses 26 to 31. So from the night that Jesus was betrayed to now, in the anticipation of what was about to take place at the cross, Jesus suffered. He suffered the great distress in the Garden of Gethsemane as he prayed to the Father. He suffered the stress of being abandoned by his disciples who had been with him ministering with him, blessing people. They were with him when they saw all these things happen. And Jesus suffered a physical beating at the home of the high priest. And then he suffered a sleepless night. Jesus ultimately suffered a scourging and was weakened just short of total collapse. And I think like all who were to be executed, he carried what was likely the crossbar of the cross. The weight of the entire cross is said to have been about 300 pounds, and the crossbar would have been about 100 of those pounds. And the one being executed was typically stripped and then his hands fastened to the wood. They laid hold of Simon, who was from Cyrene in North Africa, roughly the area of modern-day Libya. Simon was likely visiting Jerusalem as a Passover pilgrim. There's reason to believe that Simon came to faith because his sons are noted to have become leaders among the early Christians. And a large crowd followed along, including the women who were mourning and weeping and lamenting what was taking place. And Jesus told them not to weep for him, but to weep for the people who rejected him. You see, he knew that it was about to be bad for him, but it was going to be far worse for Jerusalem. It was going to be far worse for all who would reject his grace. And he said, weep for them. 
We'll begin reading in Luke chapter 23 and verse 32. Two other criminals were led away also to be executed with them. And when they arrived at the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. The people stood watching and even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself if this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. Soldiers also mocked him and they came offering him sour wine and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was above him, This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, Don't you even fear God since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Verse 44, it was about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three, because the sun's light failed. The curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle, and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last, and when the centurion saw what happened, He began to glorify God, saying, this man really was righteous. All the crowds that had gathered for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place went home, striking their chests. But all who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Verse 50, there was a good and righteous man named Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin who had not agreed with their plan and action. He was from Arimathea, a Judean town, and was looking forward to the kingdom of God. He approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Taking it down, he wrapped it in fine linen and placed it in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever been placed. It was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed along and observed the tomb and how his body was placed. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for this account of the cross. Father, in this moment, I feel woefully inadequate to describe it, to proclaim what happened. We thank you that you've given us your word, which gives us an understanding of the magnitude of what Jesus Christ, our Savior, has done. And I pray in these moments that we would not take for granted this narrative just because we've heard it so many times, but that we would be drawn in once again with a focus on your glory, that we would see Jesus Christ who is exalted at your right hand, that we would understand the price that has been paid for our sins that we would understand the gift that has been given, a gift of grace in the good news. 
and that our lives would be lived in accordance with who you are and what you've done out of gratitude in our lives. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. As the narrative continues in verse 32 to 43 here that we just read, There was a specific place just outside of Jerusalem where people were crucified. It was the place called Calvary, Golgotha, the place of the skull. Jesus was crucified. And on the cross, he prayed for his executioners, asking God not to hold their sin against them. We're going to come back to this in just a moment. And the amazing thought that that is that he would even do that in that moment. And one of the criminals crucified alongside of him actually blasphemed Jesus. The other criminal realized that Jesus was blameless and called him Lord. And he said to him, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. We learn in verses 44 to 49 that Jesus died on the cross. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three. And I'll tell you what I think was happening in that moment. I think all of creation was in agony over the suffering of the Creator on the cross. The veil of the temple was torn in two, symbolizing that by the death of Jesus, people had free access to the throne of God. And Jesus cried out to the Father in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. And then he breathed his last. John's Gospel tells us that Jesus said, It is finished, which is in Greek one word meaning paid in full. Jesus paid in full the debt of sin that we owed. And he finished his eternal purpose on the cross. And there was a centurion that was looking on and he exclaimed, this man really was righteous. And then Joseph of Arimathea, who was a good and righteous man, who was a member of the Sanhedrin and who had not gone along with what they had done. He was looking forward to the kingdom of God. And he approaches Pilate and he asks him for the body of Jesus. The body of Jesus was taken down from the cross, wrapped in fine linen, and placed in a tomb where no one had ever been placed. And the women who followed along observed what happened and where and how his body was laid. And they returned with spices and perfumes for proper burial. And then they rested on the Sabbath. It was Saturday. But Sunday was coming. I want to ask and answer this question in just these few moments that we have remaining together today. What is the significance of the cross? Why does it matter? What should be our response to it as we look to what Jesus did on our behalf? Well, first of all, the cross reveals the darkness of sin. It reveals the darkness of sin. Now, you think about the earthly ministry of Jesus. It was a blessing to many people. His teaching, his miracles, his healings demonstrated. He was God's anointed one. He was the long-awaited Messiah. And here was Jesus who had left the glory of heaven, heaven that is the place of God's abode. It's the place of absolute holiness. It's the place of absolute light. Every praise is due to God, because he is the one who has all of the glory. And yet Jesus was willing to leave that place of glory, that place of absolute holiness, and that place of absolute light. And he was willing to come to this earth and lay down his life for sinners. Remember, we've looked at our theme verse as we've progressed through the Gospel of Luke. And that theme verse is found in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. 
For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. That encapsulates the purpose of Jesus and the purpose of Luke's gospel in communicating it to us. When we begin to think about the darkness of sin, the best way that we can really understand it is to contrast it with the light of God's holiness. The Bible says that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. 1 John chapter 1. Jesus declared himself to be the light of the world in John 8 and verse 12. And he said, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So we think about darkness in the Bible, it's often used as a symbol of, of sin. And not just a symbol of sin, but also the effects of sin. And that darkness is contrasted with the light as a symbol of the presence of God. Think about when darkness entered into the world, when Adam and Eve sinned and they disobeyed God. And then now we understand that all people are born into sin. And we also choose to sin willfully. And what our sin does is it separates us from God. And I think spiritual darkness means not having fellowship with God. The Apostle Paul would describe all who are in a sinful state as having a darkened, closed mind and hardened hearts. Ephesians 4 and verse 18 says their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life that God gives them because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. So what is darkness? Darkness is ignorance of the truth of the Bible because we're caught up in lies. We're caught up in things that aren't true. We're caught up in our own pursuits. And that darkness captures us and it keeps us away from the truth of the Bible. Darkness represents an inability to find the right way when we're trying to find our path. And listen, people try to find their way in all sorts of paths. And yet they're walking in darkness. And darkness represents that inability to find the right way. Darkness represents ultimately death and the grave. Particularly if it is apart from God. So we would say that apart from Jesus, we are all flawed, broken, sinful, and we're under the darkness of sin. And the darkness of sin was never darker than when the Son of God was crucified. Because here he was bearing the weight of it all. And he makes it clear that all who reject him will ultimately be cast into the place of outer darkness. It was Jesus that referred to the outer darkness. It was Jesus that referred to the place of weeping and the place of the gnashing of teeth. And it was Jesus that said all who do not know him will spend eternity there. And here he was on the cross revealing the darkness of sin because he was going to overcome it. And he came to bring the light of God into a spiritually dark and dying world. And the cross reveals the darkness of sin. But second, the cross displays the judgment of God upon sin. The fundamental question that is before us when we consider the cross is how can a holy God be reconciled to sinful people? How can we... Be right with our Creator. How can we be forgiven of our sins? How can we know that there's any type of hope beyond this life? 
And it's at the cross that we can learn about the holiness of God and we understand that God was not willing to violate his holiness. You understand that the Bible makes it clear that God will do nothing that violates his character. He will do nothing that violates his holiness. And it was at the cross that the wrath of God was evident in the judgment upon sin. And hey, I understand that the teaching on the wrath and the judgment of God's out of vogue. A lot of people don't want to hear it. It upsets the contemporary mind and is seen as just too tolerant, intolerant. And people have set themselves up as judges of the character of God and put him on trial in some way. Rather than our character being under the light of God. You remember Jesus agonized in the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed, Father, this If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What was that cup that Jesus was referencing? He's talking about the cup of suffering. The cup that would be filled with the wrath of God. And followed by the pouring out of his blood. Revelation 19 refers to the return of Jesus to the earth as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And in verse 15 it says, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. If you read the Bible, you'll find this idea of the winepress mentioned several times. And I think the winepress is is a vivid symbol of God's wrath that came from the ancient practice of stomping on the grapes as part of the wine-making process. And then the cup symbolizes Jesus drinking the wrath of God and pouring out his blood on the cross. So let me state it another way. Jesus took our full judgment upon himself. It wasn't his because he was sinless. He was tempted at every point as we are, yet he was without sin. So this was not a judgment that he deserved. This was a judgment that he willingly took for us. And what he was doing was he was drinking of the wrath of God. He was bearing the full weight of the judgment that we deserve. And 1 John 2 and verse 1 and 2 says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself, listen to this, is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. You know what the word propitiation means? It means to turn away wrath. Propitiation is the idea of appeasement or satisfaction. So let's bring these two ideas together. Jesus took our full judgment upon himself. And in doing so, God's wrath was satisfied in Jesus John Calvin said it was an astonishing display of the wrath of God that he did not spare even his only begotten son. When Jesus was crucified, the sun was darkened while he was on the cross. And as I said, I think that was all of creation mourning the creator on the cross. But it was also a symbol of the fact that the wrath had come. And in doing so, Jesus was pointing to that moment. But he also spoke, when he spoke to the daughters of Jerusalem, for example, about the wrath that was to come on Jerusalem, he was talking about a, a, a future fulfillment 
that would point to an ultimate fulfillment. Remember when we see prophecy in the scripture, sometimes there's a more immediate fulfillment that we find, and then it's pointing to something further in the future as well. And I think that was the case because in 70 AD, certainly, there was going to be a full judgment that would come on Jerusalem at the hands of the Romans, and the suffering would be so great that it would have been better for them not to have children at all rather than to watch them starve and see them slaughtered by Roman swords. But he was pointing to something further, that death by crucifixion was a symbol of the wrath of God in the judgment to come. So it's one of two things. Either we accept by faith the judgment that Jesus endured for us and we're saved, or we don't. There's no middle ground. It's either we are declared righteous in him, we are justified by grace through faith, or we're not. There's no murky spiritual middle ground here where some things are going to happen to some people and some things are going to happen to other people, but this group in the middle, it just kind of depends. That's not the case. It either is or it isn't. And the suffering that Jesus endured there at the cross was both a physical suffering and a spiritual suffering. Someone said the cross is the time of judgment understood as the point in history where God sovereignly intervened in human affairs to solve humanity's sin problem. Time and place came together at the cross when Jesus bore the punishment of God for our sin. The innocent, Jesus Christ, took the place of the guilty, sinners like us. And in doing so, he bore the judgment that we deserved. That's why Romans 6 and verse 10 says, the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. This was a once and for all sacrifice. This was a moment when the redemptive work of God was finished. There was nothing that needed to be added to it. There was nothing that could be done to improve it. There was nothing that we can do to deserve it. This is Jesus serving the just sentence that we as sinners deserve. The cross displays the judgment of God on sin. And then third, the cross expresses the extravagant grace of God for sinners. There's a reason that we call it good news. And it is good news for all who will believe. The recorded words of Jesus on the cross Here, our Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now, bear in mind, this is the same Jesus who taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Turns out he meant it. He meant all of it. it. This is extravagant grace. And here he is in this moment, the prayer of Jesus for those who are actually carrying out the crucifixion. And he's praying that they might receive forgiveness. And I want to tell you, friends, the prayer of Jesus for those who so terribly mistreated him ought to give hope to the worst of sinners. You might say, well, pastor, you don't know where I've come from. It doesn't matter. You don't know what I've done. It doesn't matter. Even as a Christian, you might say today, you don't know how far I've drifted from God and and how distant God seems from me. I want you to know that regardless of what your life situation is, regardless of where you've come from and what you've done, there is extravagant grace for you. And here was Jesus being crucified between two criminals. And we get a little contrast here of the way people respond 
Some respond in faith and some reject. One of them responded in faith and the other didn't. One insulted Jesus. One cried out to Jesus. And bear in mind that the man who rejected Jesus audibly heard him pray. He witnessed the salvation of the other criminal. Today you will be with me in paradise. He saw the world go miraculously dark, and yet he refused to believe. You say, well, that's absurd. Some of you who are listening to me right now, or listening to this message later on, are going to do the same thing. You've heard the good news. You've seen people's lives changed. You've seen the power of God at work. And yet you still want to go your own way without the light of God, without the grace of God bearing you up. And I'm here to tell you, it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be because Christ died for sinners. And if you'd be willing to admit that you're a sinner and repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ, you can be saved. This thief that believed, he didn't know everything there was to know. He just knew that there was something powerful going on here and that forgiveness was being offered. And he knew that when he cried out to Jesus, Jesus promised him that he would be with him in paradise. 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Ephesians 1 and verse 7 says, In him we have redemption in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished upon us. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 14 says, The grace of the Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Are you hearing those words? The one who is the wealthiest of all, because he's the one who spoke creation into being, was willing to leave heaven and come to earth so that we might gain heaven. And this grace is lavished. It overflows. I I love the language of the scripture because it reminds me that Human words are limited in explaining the magnitude of what Christ did on the cross. That God lavishes his grace on you. That the overflowing grace of God is available in your life. And that ought to bring us hope and it ought to remind us that this gift of salvation is indeed a gift. It's not something that we earn and it's not something that we deserve. I think about the uh, parable of the vineyard workers in the Gospel of Matthew, you think about vineyards in those days, it took a lot of work planting and maintaining and harvesting, and laborers were needed to get all that work done. And the owners of a particular vineyard went to hire some day laborers, went early in the morning, six o'clock in the morning, and offers the wage of one day's pay. The workers were happy to work for that amount, and as the day went on, More workers were hired, and the landowner promised to pay whatever was right. All total, four groups were hired, 
And the last ones, only an hour before the end of the day. When it came time to pay them, the ones who got there late got paid the same as the ones who were hired early. The earlier group didn't like it even though they had been treated fairly. And I think in that parable, the landowner represents God. The pay represents the incomparable gift of salvation, which none of us deserve. God had raised up uh, Israel. He had chosen them to be his special people. It was through them that the light of the Messiah would come. Some would understand what they had been given and ultimately believe in Jesus Christ and follow him, but many did not. The Gentiles were grafted in to the root and were blessed so that all the nations would hear about the glory of God and the gift of salvation. And that little parable is a reminder to us that no matter what time in the day that we come, that gift of salvation is the same. We might come early or we might come late. Now, I would warn you here not to think that you can just delay and come when you please. That's not the message of that parable. The message of that parable is that what you will receive will be the same whenever you come. And that tells us that the gift of salvation and the Christian faith is not about try harder and do better. It's not about somehow trying to pay God back. That would be a foolish thought. It's not the idea that somehow we can add something to our salvation. That's certainly not the case. What it is is a reminder that it is all of grace. And it is extravagant grace that is available through the cross. Galatians 6 and verse 14 says, But as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross and I to the world. We have nothing to boast about except Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, reigning, and soon to return. I close with this story. There was a lady by the name of Jesse Pounds who wrote the hymn, The Way of the Cross Leads Home, how I've entitled my message today. She wrote that hymn in the early 1900s, and it's said that Charles Gabriel added the music to the hymn. Uh, Reportedly, Pounds was born near Cleveland, and in her middle teenage years, she began to write. And she would submit articles and, and poems and different things that she had written to the local newspapers and to religious publications. And eventually, she wrote somewhere around 400 hymns. Now, it's not really known what led her to write this particular hymn. Uh, But throughout history, it's been speculated that it was inspired by a popular sermon illustration that was circulating during that time. The geographical heart of London is Charing Cross, which is referred to locally as the cross. And as the sermon illustration went, there was a London police officer who reportedly came upon a lost child who was unable to tell him where he lived. And in the midst of the tears and the distress of being lost, the child said, If you'll take me to the cross, I think I can find my way home from there. And it's thought that that is what inspired, that sermon illustration is what inspired Jesse Pounds to write, The Way of the Cross Leads Home. Church, I want you to know today that the cross 
is the only way to an eternal home in heaven with God. Jesus Christ says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. There aren't many ways that lead to the top of the mountain. There's only one way that leads to the top of the mountain, and that's through the cross of Jesus Christ, the crucified Savior, the one who was willing to spill his blood for you, the one who was willing to leave heaven and come to earth, the one who was willing to be tempted at every point as we are, yet was without sin, the one who was willing to bear the weight of the judgment of God and the wrath that we deserve, the one who was willing to give his life for us. As the perfect sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice. It's only through him that we can say today, the way of the cross leads home. Father, thank you for the blessing of your word, for the exaltation of Christ at the cross, the suffering that he endured on our behalf And here in just a moment as we sing this old song, The Way of the Cross Leads Home, I pray really two ways, Lord, in in this time of closing. That those of us who know that way, those of us who have been saved by the blood of Jesus, who are empowered by the resurrection power, that we would thank you, we would worship you, we would be grateful to you, and that our lives would be lived in such a way that we honor you because Jesus is worthy and we have nothing else to boast in. But God, maybe there's somebody here today that hasn't yet found their way. They've not found their way home. Still in the darkness. Still trying to go another way. And there's only one way, Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And I pray that you would speak to hearts and change lives even in this moment. We give this time of closure and response over to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.